0: Laid off by email, how could the army make such an embarrassing mistake?
1: Something sort of you might expect from a playground romance, not a 22-year contract with the Majesty's Armed Forces. I've insisted that they immediately put actions in place to stop this ever happening again.
0: First Tunisia, then Egypt. How much further will anti-government demos spread across the Middle East?
2: BFBS. Headlines. The governor of Helmand province, Golab Mangal, says a controversial program of American-funded civilian militia is to be expanded. He's described the local armed groups as an important weapon in the struggle against the Taliban. Armed police in Bahrain are patrolling the streets of the capital, Manama, after breaking up anti-government protests. At least three people were killed and more than 300 were injured when riot police used rubber bullets and tear gas. A significant and complex investigation into child sexual abuse has begun in Devon. Detectives have written to parents of children at secondary schools in Torbay and Tambridge and say they are still identifying potential victims. A 19-year-old man's been arrested. Police have described the theft of thousands of pounds worth of military kit destined for the front line in Afghanistan as utterly despicable. Hundreds of pairs of NATO desert boots were taken from a lorry in Oxfordshire. They were worth around £31,000. That's the latest. I'm Vicky Turner.
0: We know that thousands of people across the forces are going to lose their jobs, but we didn't know that some of them would find out when they turned on their television or checked their email. The army said sorry after 38 long-serving soldiers were sent messages telling them they had a year to find another job. Meanwhile, almost half the RAF's trainee pilots have been told this week they're no longer needed, but only after the cuts were reported in newspapers. How could it have happened? Does the Ministry of Defence have a plan for implementing the cuts it announced last year? Here's Paul Osborne.
3: The 38 soldiers had each served at least 22 years. They should have been told face-to-face by a commanding officer that they were being made redundant. Instead, they got emails telling them to start planning their resettlement. One of them got that message while on the front line in Afghanistan. Conservative MP Patrick Mercer is a former army officer.
4: It would be bad enough to treat any soldier like this, a three-year serving private if you dealt with him like this, that would be a disgrace. But, but these men are 22-year long-serving senior non-commissioned officers, the backbone of the army. And to be dumped by email is a sort of, um, sort of thing you might expect from a playground romance, not a 22-year contract with the Majesty's Armed Forces.
3: The Army's apologising, but the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, wants to
1: know how it could happen. Nobody should ever be told they're losing their job by email, and it's certainly no way to treat members of the armed forces. I've asked the Army for a full explanation about exactly how this happened, but more importantly, I've insisted that they immediately put actions in place to stop this ever happening again.
3: Meanwhile, at the RAF, a similar blunder. It had planned this week to tell 175 trainee pilots, almost half the number currently in training, that they'd have to leave. The media told them first. It's cost up to £4 million to train each pilot. Some reportedly even offered to take a pay cut so they could qualify. But Defence Minister Gerald Howarth says they're simply no
4: longer needed. If there are no aeroplanes for them to fly, then there are no jobs for them to do. That is the whole logic of the argument and therefore it is necessary to tailor the number of aircrew to the number of aircraft which will be available. Um, But, of course, the intention is to ensure that uh, we don't turn the tap off completely. There will continue to be
3: aircrew being trained. James Edwards, who's from Kent, have been accepted for training but has now been told he won't become an RAF pilot. makes me feel absolutely awful. Uh, It's
4: been what I've wanted since I was about four. You've got to completely rethink your life. Um, you come up with plans, and when that, all those steps are taken away from you and you're left with nothing, you're left, left
3: with an empty space. At the MOD, Liam Fox is admitting the army redundancy emails were an embarrassing mistake, but he's blaming the press for reporting the RAF cuts
1: too soon. This was a leak, and it doesn't help us dealing with our personnel when that sort of leak takes place. We should at all times treat our personnel with the greatest respect And if there is bad news to be imparted to them, that should be done on a face-to-face basis, Uh, neither through the leaking in a newspaper nor on an email. Both are equally unacceptable.
3: Labour's called it absolutely unforgivable. Thousands more service personnel will be told they're losing their jobs. Many will now be wondering how they'll find out.
0: Paul Osborne reporting. Well, earlier I spoke to Major General Richard Barons, the Assistant Chief of the General Staff. He told me the Army redundancy emails were a terrible mistake.
5: It is as, as simple as an email uh, that should have gone to the commanding officers of soldiers who are going to be told uh, that their service is going to be concluded was sent instead direct to those individuals. Uh, and I can only apologise to those 38 soldiers and their families and indeed the rest of the army who, ex- who expect uh, these soldiers and themselves to be treated better. It should not have happened, but it was a simple email mistake.
0: This is the start of the job-cutting process announced some four months ago in the Defence Review. Some 7,000 army jobs have to go. How can you make sure it doesn't happen again?
5: Well, uh, uh, my first point is actually this particular measure is not directly linked to the implementation of the Defence Review. This is a part of a normal day-to-day business of making quite difficult decisions about how people can stay in the army when we are very nearly at full strength. But the point that you make is a good one, which is we have got some 7,000 people who we're now required uh, to lose from the Army, and we're going to have to make sure that that is done uh, much better than it has happened in this particular case. And the way we're going to do that is to make sure the work that's done in the Army Personnel uh, Centre now includes perhaps better training, but certainly more checks and balances to make sure that the traffic goes to the right place at the right time.
0: Clearly a difficult time for everybody involved, including yourself. What are you doing to uh, ease the uncertainty?
5: Nobody really likes uncertainty, so the best thing we can do uh, is to decide well and quickly, but those two things have to happen. And then when we are clear what's going to happen, then announce it so that people know as well in advance as possible uh, how, the future, how the future lies, and that's what we intend to do.
0: So when do you think people have a clear idea of, of who's losing their jobs?
5: I think uh, the, the first pass at this, the first tranche, if you like, uh, is, is a likely to become clear during the first months of this spring, I think April, May time. Um, And we'll only do it when we're clear that we're going to set out the right information.
0: Uh, You have said that uh, the mistakes that were made in this particular case uh, have nothing to do with the cuts that have been announced in the defence review. What have you learnt from it, though, that you will actually be able to use so that uh, this kind of the uncertainty, the problems that are arising, the difficult decisions you'll have to announce won't be repeated?
5: Well, uh, I I think um, we have reminded ourselves that we have some good procedures which uh, have at their heart the golden rule that if you're going to give a soldier, be he young, uh, middle or senior, uh, some difficult news about his future service, he gets that news face to face and and no other way. So uh, we have some good rules. We just need to stick to them.
0: Major General Richard Barons. Well, earlier I spoke to the shadowed Defence Secretary Jim Murphy and asked him for his view on the way these announcements were handled.
6: We can't stop every redundancy in the Ministry of Defence, but this is no way to treat army heroes who have served for decades in protecting our country and RAF trainees whose dreams have been shattered. These RAF trainees found out by media leak, and the army uh, folk found out by an email. No one should lose their job by email, regardless what job it is, but to sack um, dedicated warrant officers by email is utterly unforgivable. The government should hang its head in shame.
0: Well, the Defence Secretary Liam Fox was asked about your criticism and this is what he had to say.
1: We wouldn't be making these redundancies at all had we not been left in an absolute mess by the previous government. And, you know, I I think that those who have landed us in this place uh, would do well to remain silent. Uh, A lot of people are being made redundant who wouldn't otherwise have to be made redundant. I don't think we need them adding uh, to their personal suffering.
0: Okay, so your point is that the way it's been done has been badly handled. It has been apologised for for by the army. Um, But he does have a point, doesn't he? Because the coalition government is in the early stages of trying to sort out the mess that they were left with.
6: There's two things about that. Firstly, and I've, I've got no personal gripe with Liam. I always try in politics to play the ball rather than the man. So, but his, his argument doesn't stack up. Firstly, uh, when they were in the Conservatives were in opposition, they knew about the financial crisis that had swept the world, but they were still promising a bigger army, a bigger navy, and a bigger air force on the eve of the election. They were promising more spending, even though they knew the problems. And as soon as they get into power, they cut, they're cutting, cutting, and cutting again. And the problem is, I think they're locked in the logic of cutting the deficit too quickly. Of course there has to be savings. Everyone knows that. But to cut the deficit as quickly as this is leading to a rushed process with mistakes being made and some of them are serious, very serious indeed.
0: Now you've been defeated this week in your attempts to get the military covenant more comprehensively enshrined into law. What's your reaction to that defeat?
6: I'm really disappointed by the House of Commons decision not to define in law the military covenant. The The government promised, and the Prime Minister was on Art Royal, promising um, that the military government would be enshrined in law. The House of Commons had a chance to put its vote where the Prime Minister's mouth was, and they rejected it. But we're going to continue our campaign. It's been a bad week, I think, for the Ministry of Defence, with the leaked emails to warrant officers with the sacking of RAF trainee pilots, and now them blocking moves to enshrine and define the covenant in law, I think people are scratching their heads and thinking, this isn't what we were promised when we got a change of government.
0: Jim Murphy. Well, in the studio with me is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Uh, Those people currently serving and wondering if their jobs are safe will also be wondering if they can have any trust in the people at the top of the forces.
4: I've been watching the MOD now for 25 years. It is arguably, uh, along with perhaps the old Ministry of Agriculture, the most arrogant, incompetent ministry in the whole of Whitehall.
0: Arguably by you, of course. (laughs)
4: Arguably always by me, but with other people's input, because I I don't know everything. Now, um, when they talk about uh, the leak in the media,
0: where do you think it came
4: from? It came from the Royal Air Force. It didn't come from the defence correspondent who out of And what, would, what would be their the motive for doing that, Christopher? Uh, to bring it to light and say this is disgraceful, etc. And hopefully, hopefully against hope, uh, to try and save some of those jobs so that people can read the Daily Telegraph. I think the Telegraph and the and the BBC was where it, where it appeared. They can actually say, you know, come off it, MOD, save some of our brave boys. Um, the Thing about the um, the email, it is typical. I mean, long before emails, long before Google became a verb, mm. uh, people did things with the most amazing arrogance in the MOD and incompetence. I mean, it was explained as,
0: well. as, as, as literally a simple mistake made by perhaps one person, perhaps more.
4: Yes, and but you you get it, and I know it's a political. You've got to have a political answer um, when when the defence secretary Liam Fox who says, um, mess or no mess, uh, then Murphy, uh, Jim Murphy, ought to remain quiet about this. Um, um, It's absolute nonsense. Why shouldn't Jim Murphy actually come out with this at all? I've got no brief for Jim Murphy at all. It is the sort of thing that anybody who uh, follows, for example, the House of Commons Defence Committee, um, and goes to their hearings, they will hear week after week or hearing after hearing, This level of incompetence, which is baffling, but it's been going on. I mean, certainly to my mind, it's been going on for the past 25 years. Nothing has changed, and it's not just the civil servants. It's also a lot of the military in the defence ministry who use the job for political reasons to get themselves promoted.
0: Christopher, stay with us, because on the subject of the military covenant, the first in a series of inquiries looking at just that and the welfare support offered to members of the armed forces has been announced this week. The Defence Committee will concentrate on the help offered to service personnel, civilians and their families. We can talk now to Gisela Stewart, who is a Labour member of the Defence Committee. Gisela, thanks very much for your time today. Uh, Why and when did you decide that this inquiry was necessary?
7: We, we started to look at it at the end of last year of what we would do over the term of the, the government as a select committee and what we needed to look at. And in a sense, it coincided well with the armed forces bill that is going through. But also, uh, those of us who have either got troops uh, based in our constituencies or, like in my case, at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, the Center for Defense Medicine is in my constituency, we have seen that uh, now that so many of our personnel are coming back injured, uh, their, their families need to be looked after better, and we were aware that this is something the politicians need to look at. It's not just the deployment of our troops, but it's how the politicians and the army relate to each other.
0: What's your concern? Is it that they're not actually honouring the commitments that they've made?
7: It is. Both that uh, in terms of uh, looking after them for housing, looking after for uh, education of their children, but also new demands are being made. And I see uh, personnel surviving in Afghanistan coming back to to Birmingham. But then, of course, they will need for the next 20, 30 years continuing care. We also realized that mental health was something that needed more attention. So it, it was a case of also responding to changed needs, because of the way we've used our troops.
0: So how exactly will you go about this inquiry?
7: What happens with these uh, inquiries, we've just opened up and said uh, any comments are welcome. So anybody uh, who who wants us to take anything on board, take evidence on board, should send it to the committee, email it, uh, and we, the members, will look at that. We will also ask witnesses to come and give evidence
0: to us before we produce a report. Christopher, will you be making any comments to the committee on this?
4: Uh, I don't think the committee will actually need to hear what I've got to say. But I'll tell you, it's an interesting thing, which I think Gisela Stewart might be able to enlarge upon. Um, a lot of the th- points they're going to look at, for example, how effectively the MOD works with local authorities and health authorities and also charities, um, at a time of cuts... It's not simply a question of the MOD working with some of the local authorities. It's the resources that the local authorities might actually have to do some of this job. And also we shouldn't give an impression that the it all should all be done by the MOD or whatever um, because sometimes for continuity's sake it is the voluntary
0: organizations
4: which do have that and provide that
0: continuity. So Gisela, how much will you be looking at the resourcing of the of this support?
7: Oh, we will look at that. But one of the things which has been raised, which is one of my my areas of concern, is that it's quite right that uh, such charitable uh, organizations like Help for Heroes have created a significant revenue stream. Uh, but we've got to be careful that what the charitable organizations provide, that we use it strategically and don't forget about... Things like the, the Royal British Legion, who have been magnificent over the years, so support the existing ones and not always look for new things, which may just fragment the overall effort.
0: So you're actually looking at the broader picture of the whole big society idea then? Well, in the sense
7: of how, how, how it works together. I mean, in, in, in Birmingham, we have just, uh, they've just established hel- uh, Homes for Heroes, uh, again, uh, with, with donations. So, But these things have to fit in and be actually placed, put in the right place, not just where the goodwill is, but also where it's needed.
0: Uh, Gisela, what kind of influence are you like to have with the results of this?
7: I found that with uh, select committees it, it, it varies, but uh, having been on different committees. But what I found with the Defence Committee is that it tends to come forward with very measured and thoughtful and positive suggestions of how... The, the government could actually improve in what it's doing. It's not a committee that tends to go for confrontational reports and if you do it in this positive approach we tend to be listened to probably more than some of the other committees.
0: Ketela Stewart, thank you very much for your time today. with Still to come this week, how far will the Middle East democracy protest spread and how the groom's outfit could cause headaches at the royal wedding. The events in Egypt have arguably triggered protests in other countries with violence in Iran, Libya and Bahrain, where security forces used tear gas against thousands of anti-government demonstrators on the capital, Manama.
5: They started shooting on us, the tear gas. They were shooting in a way that you cannot imagine it, from everywhere, from everywhere. The scene is
7: quite chaotic. There are ambulances rushing in, there are people angry people all around, Uh, yeah, I mean, there there are definitely hundreds of people here, and uh, yeah, the ambulances keep coming in, people are chanting, they're angry.
0: At least five people have died in protests in Bahrain this week. In Libya, demonstrators clashed with police in protests against Colonel Gaddafi's 42-year rule. Mohamed Ali Abdullah is from the National Front for the Salvation of Libya. He says the protesters have drawn strength from events in Tunisia and Egypt.
7: People have now been empowered uh, to make a statement and to take things into their own hands, and to take matters into their own hands, which is a very positive thing. Uh, people have had, you know, chanted, Today, halas, which means enough, uh, enough. Forty-two years of oppression, forty-two years of a dictatorial, utilitarian rule, is enough. The source of the problem is the same person, and it starts with getting rid of him. And that's the common denominator that you get all the people into coming out for these demonstrations.
0: Well, Rosemary Hollis is a professor of Middle East Policy Studies at City University. Rosemary, thanks for your time. In both Bahrain and Libya, it seems the authorities are determined to stamp out any anti-government protests.
8: Yes, but in Bahrain last night, it looks as if the government overreacted. Uh, The king had previously made a statement to the effect that he was sorry a a demonstrator had been killed earlier and would stage an inquiry. Bahrain is clearly ambivalent uh, about what to do, and last night was a bad sign. Ambivalent because they do have a parliament, and they have a history of trying to find ways to involve the Shia majority in the life of the polity, at the same time as maintaining a Sunni minority dominance for the monarchy, Uh, and they have reacted differently at different stages. Quite where this will go, you've got the British Foreign Secretary and a spokesman for the Prime Minister trying to tell them, don't overreact. Uh, Really, the last thing you should be doing is firing on demonstrators and operating with a heavy hand. Allow peaceful protests. There's other ways to contain them. That's the message going to Bahrain from the British, at least.
0: Are you surprised, Rosemary, that the unrest has reached Bahrain? I'm surprised at
8: the extent of the unrest across the whole Arab world. I was expecting a knock-on effect, but now it's everywhere. And... uh, So far, up to a point, I think, uh, the Syrians have escaped and Lebanon is caught in a rather different uh, situation because they already had mass demonstrations, but the country is split in terms of what to do in Libya. I mean, I beg your pardon, in Lebanon. But uh, there's great bravery. Taking on the Libyan government is really very brave to do. And this is what we've seen in Benghazi. Uh, We know that there are a lot of political prisoners there. We know that uh, the arrest of a leader of human rights movement trying to represent the rights of prisoners who simply disappeared over the years uh, was the trigger in Libya. And the inspiration, no doubt, is coming from the success of demonstrations in Tunisia and Egypt in ousting presidents. But it's not going to be exactly the same in Libya or Bahrain, and uh, the governments, having learnt from the experience of Egypt and Tunisia, are going to use more violence, and you should not anticipate, I don't think, the army standing with the people in either place in the way that it did in Egypt.
0: Chris, on the subject of Bahrain, the Foreign Secretary has been saying he would strongly oppose any outside influence. On the country. Uh, he's talking about the risk posed by Iran, isn't he?
4: Well, he's talking about a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, the, the attitude about uh, Iran is very simple. Everybody in the West is, again, Iran. And, you know, with good, good, good cause quite often. You've got to remember that Iran, uh, that Iran is Shia. Uh, 70% of the people in Bahrain are Shia. Uh, it was the same in Iraq. Shia was the majority ruled by a Sunni minority. But there's far more to it, and William Hague understands this. We were talking in his office the other day, and you, you talk about uh, Libya. Um, um, Rosie was just talking about the arrest of somebody, or I assume she means the lawyer, Turbil. Um, you Go back and find a cause for all this. You have to go back to 1996 uh, and the prison at Abu Salim. A thousand people. It was a massacre. And people haven't forgotten that. He is the guy that represents the families. That becomes the focal point just as the focal point in Egypt was the death of one man. Uh, but what caused it afterwards? What happens afterwards? It takes the whole thing to a bigger dimension, which is why people like Rosie say, we didn't realise this was um, going to happen. Um,
0: and briefly, just explain our military interests in Bahrain.
4: Well, we've got people in Bahrain, but the most important thing is the Americans park their Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. And, and I've we've heard got things, Royal Navy
0: personnel We've got well.
4: Royal Navy personnel. The whole area, we've got defence contracts, we've got, uh, I suppose, obligations there, but also you've got the gulf and this is one of the the conduits through through which comes oil and that is our main concern, and it is energy security, which forever has been the case, ever since 1914.
0: Well, in Iran, protesters sense an opportunity to pull the regime under pressure, to put them under pressure, but authorities in Tehran apparently won't tolerate a repeat of the demonstrations that followed widely discredited elections two years ago. But the US Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, is warning the country's rulers they can't ignore the growing demands for real change
7: we would call to account the Iranian government that is once again using its security forces and resorting to violence to prevent the free expression of ideas from their own people.
0: Uh, Rosemary, we've been here before, haven't we? The 2009 uprising failed. Is there any evidence opposition protests will be any more successful this time in Iran?
8: i think the authorities in iran have learned from the experience in 2009 that they can suppress opposition those protests followed the election or the claimed election victory of president Ahmadinejad, and it was two of his opponents in the presidential race who were at the forefront of the opposition uh, and the demonstrations in the following days that are still having repercussions. You have people arrested in the wake of that who are still going on trial. Uh, people who had, who are strong patriots, uh, who were in no sense working for outside forces, but have been blamed for aiding outside forces, such as the Americans, by their opposition to the regime decision to give the election to Ahmadinejad. It's interesting, isn't it, that you've got the Americans saying, uh, cautioning the Iranians not to clamp down on demonstrators, the British doing the same with the Bahraini King, um, and both America and Britain having decided to side with the demonstrators in Egypt after some hesitation at the beginning. Uh, In other words, they're throwing in their lot, more or less, uh, with the cause of people power, but probably bracing themselves for the repercussions. They'd love to see a change of regime in Iran, but... uh, For the West at least, changes of regime in almost everywhere else may not be good news.
0: All right, there we'll have to leave it. Rosemary Hollis, thank you very much for your time today. The defence secretary has warned casualty numbers could rise in Afghanistan in the coming months. Liam Fox has told MPs insurgent activity is expected to intensify, but he's also said coalition forces are making progress. That echoes comments this week from the commander of British troops in Afghanistan, Brigadier James Chiswell, who says he's cautiously optimistic.
4: There is a feeling that um, that the momentum is shifting. There's certainly a sense over this winter period that the insurgency is under a lot of pressure, but. Perhaps more importantly um, there is a real sense in terms of growing local confidence confidence to shake off the intimidation that underpins that insurgency and indeed to put their trust in the state there has been a pattern where things have been quieter during the winter and people have felt more optimistic so we'll come into a summer period and perhaps we'll only really see during that time just how successful the strategy is
0: uh, Christopher, cautious optimism from military leaders. Uh, there have been reports that decisive action is planned in the coming months. That's presumably linked to Liam Fox's warning about more casualties. Mainly
4: linked to the weather. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, in we're that now, the insurgent activity <clears> will increase. Yeah, we're now getting into a, a, a bigger fighting uh, uh, series. I mean, there are all sorts of things going on there which are very important. That is partly the American predator, the unmanned uh, uh, guidance systems, which are having a big effect... ...along the border regions. But there's some bad news coming out of Marja just this morning... The militias there that they set up, especially the Americans, have been setting up. You know, the local people. You're on our side. We have one person for every twenty two Afghans looking after the place. The Americans are pumping in half a million dollars every ten days into the setup of this organisation. They give small groups of these guys five thousand dollars to go and buy yourself a rifle or two, so they can stand up to the
0: Taliban on on their own. Basically, yeah. But what's
4: happening is that the whole thing is going into a a, a ball of chalk because they're fighting each other. The warlords are taking over again as I say, you're putting us back 20 years. Do you really want to do that? If that falls apart, then so does one of the most important planks of General his plan.
0: All right, uh, finally this week, Prince William's asked his brother Harry to be the best man at his wedding to Kate Middleton. April the 29th, edges ever closer and planning for the royal weddings. Throwing up a few difficult questions, hasn't it, Christopher, about the uniform that William will wear. I
4: was, I was round at Geeves and Hawks, so the, sort of the royal tailors. <laughs> you all do that.
0: dress like that, don't you? Uh,
4: well, this old shabby thing actually came from Oxfam. But <laughs> I was round at Geeves and Hawks where they do the royal uniforms in Savile Row. And I said, OK, what's he going to wear? Naval uniform, senior service, like his father did, his, brother, uh, his uncle did, his grandfather did, etc. Et so what's it to be? What do um, you say? And they said, well, hang on, you know, he is in the Royal Air Force. And therefore, um, he perhaps ought to wear the, uh, a Royal Air Force uniform. Then you bolt this on to the fly pass that's going to happen. Mm. They get them out from their initial reception. They come on and do the balcony scene. Along come the RAF with their fly pass. The RAF sitting here in the MAD said, this is great stuff. Great PR for the RAF. All we need is uh, Flight Lieutenant Wales to remember who his boss is, i.e. at the moment the RAF, and to wear RAF uniform right up yours, Navy. They will be crying along the third <laughs> floor the uh, MOD. It's a wonderful story. And, you know, it's now become a secret what uniform he's going to wear. And I think... If you
0: find out, please let me know. Go back to that shop and tell me.
4: Certainly not. I'll flog it to the Daily Mail the, and pay more.
0: And there we must leave it. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. You can get in touch with us at sitrep at bfbs.com. Please join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.
2: This is SitRep. On BFBS.